Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. (laughs) Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Pumba, and Parmenas. Sorry. Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, verse 8, just keep going, I don't want to stop, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came up up to him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I love this book. Father, we love your word. We love it because it's true. And we're so thankful that we get to be drawn back and and be there and see what was said and experienced through Your Word and by Your Spirit. These amazing, momentous times at the birth of the church. Father, we are here toward the end of the church age. Not the death of the church, for we know the church will live forever, cannot be destroyed. But after many, many centuries, Lord, we are here not longing for what some might call the glory days, but longing for Your glory in this day. Praying for the glory of Jesus to be known and felt and seen in this world. And we know it will. We know, Jesus, You will come. But until You call us home, until all things begin to get set in order, we ask, Lord... For Your Spirit to be upon us in the same way Your Spirit has has always been upon the church, in the same way Your Spirit was upon Stephen and, and these seven men and the apostles and the believers and the followers and the disciples, Lord. We pray that we would walk with the same kind of faith and trust and confidence and boldness with Your Word. We pray, Father, that Your Word would spread out from this place far beyond the capacity of any one of us. We want to know that we are engaged in this same work. And it is a great work. Our very reason for being. So Father, as we study Your Word this morning, continue to draw us forward, draw us out, and into the world with the Gospel of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, I got... uh... Oh, Bill's back. Hey, happy birthday, Dad. <laughs> yeah, it was a great day yesterday. He was looking forward to watching, was it, was it NASCAR and the Seahawks game? Yeah. And, you know, having his birthday dinner, which my wife cooked all day long, and, and his wife, and, and to sit back and, and finish the day watching the Seahawks beat the Chargers. <laughs> Good sign for the season right around the corner. Speaking of the Seahawks, 
Anyway, it was not the day that he planned for, and yet, hey, 35 years. Well done. Well done. Speaking of the Seahawks, I was sent something this last week. Just cracked me up, and I have to share it with you. John Linus on occasion fires off these emails to me, and I never know. All I see is Linus. I see his name in, in, the, in the tag there, and it's like, oh no, what's it going to be this week? This was great. Twelve reasons why a pastor quit attending sporting events. Twelve reasons a pastor quit going to sporting events. Number one, the coach never came to visit me. <laughs> Number two, every time I went, they asked for money. Number three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. (laughs) Number four, the seats were too hard. I've been to a few of those games, you know, it can be a problem. Number five, fifth reason a pastor quit attending sporting events. I've been hurt too many times by those sporting events. Number six, the referees made several decisions I just didn't agree with. Number seven, the fans were hypocrites. They only cared about their own team. Number eight, the games often went overtime and I was late getting home. Number nine, they played music I'd never heard before. Number ten, the games are often scheduled on my only day to sleep in. Number eleven, my parents burned me out on sporting events growing up. And number twelve, a little uncomfortable, aren't these? Number twelve, I refuse to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. All right. (laughs) Made me laugh pretty hard. I, I think about the church all the time. Many of you do as well. I understand that. And I'm not saying that I'm more anything than anyone else here but it's just it's what I do it's what I think about it's 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 on my mind this church fellowship as well as the as well as the larger church in the world i think about it all the time i hear things come out in the news things said positively and negatively mostly negatively in the media about the church and it hurts hurts my heart because i i feel so passionately about the church And I see people do things and say things and and misunderstand things. And I recognize in my own life how many times I have misunderstood what it was really all about. And I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord for the book of Acts because He forces us to look at the church. More than any other book in the Scriptures, the book of Acts forces us to deal with the church. Both as it should be and in some cases as it shouldn't be. And as we think about the church and consider the church, we understand the church is a fascinating, dynamic, scruffy organism. It is not an organization, though man has tried to make it an organization at times. It is an organism. It is so hard for the world to understand and define. The county has had massive trouble understanding what the British Christian Fellowship is. You know, the confusing a building with the church. Telling us, your church can't meet in a barn. I'm like, the church can meet anywhere we want to meet because where two or three are gathered together in His name, there we are! And there He is! And that's the church! You're telling me a family of believers can't have dinner together in a home? That's the church! It's just a building. It's a building I'm thankful for. But it is not the church. And perhaps that's why for 2,000 years the devil has not been able to stop the church. God came up with a plan that's beyond the grasp of government, beyond the grasp of of Satan's schemes, beyond the grasp of those who would come opposed to or come against the church. It just keeps going. I mentioned last week what what Sharam Hadian said about the church in Iran and how now they figured out a way to do Bible studies so that they can't be located. They have it in taxis. That's the church. Five or six people hire a taxi and drive around Tehran for an hour and have Bible study. Praise the Lord. You cannot stop the church. The church can stop the church. 
The church can misunderstand our purpose, our reason for being. And I want to ask you this morning to consider what are we here for? And what are we doing? And what are we really about? Because there's an awful lot of things, even in the Bridge Fellowship at this point in our history, a lot of things we could strip away and we would still be the church. A lot of things that we do that we could not do and yet still be the church. I've used the word simplicity now several times in studying through the book of Acts. And it's beautiful because the church is so simple. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to say we need to start cutting programs right and left. We've got to start cutting stuff. I'm just saying we need to understand how it all fits into the real purpose for our being here and for doing what we're supposed to do. We are here for one reason and one reason alone. The Gospel. We are here for the Gospel. You might say, well Rick, I thought the church was here to glorify God. The Gospel glorifies God. Well Rick, I thought the church was here to teach the Word. The Word is the Gospel. Well Rick, I thought we were here to serve mankind. To serve is to bring the Gospel. The church is here for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Everything else we do either focuses in on the gospel or it's window dressing. Sometimes we have window dressing. I understand that. That's okay. I don't have a problem with a nice window. But the church is here for the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says in Philippians 1.27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's why we're here. If not for the message of the gospel, we would have no reason for being here. And as I've said before, we would come to faith in Jesus and just go straight home because it would be unnecessary for us to be here to do anything else. The gospel. That's why we're here. But that's not always what we do. And honestly, sometimes what we do can become more important to us than why we do it. The mission gets lost in the methodology. The dunamis is replaced by the database. The purpose gets obscured by the programs. And what we see taking place in Acts chapter 6 is a wonderful example of how Peter and the apostles, actually Peter's not even mentioned here, I kind of assumed he was, but it's the apostles. It's how they don't allow that to happen. They don't allow the mission, the power of the Spirit, the purpose of the church to get lost by other things. Follow this through with me, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. How can this be? You call yourselves a church. Can't even feed your own widows? You overlook the outsider? Yeah, Christians... Hypocrites. Long before there was any division in the church at all. Long before the church had, unfortunately, tragically, sadly, some of the problems that it's had over the past 2,000 years. There was already division. In fact, the church brought together groups that were seriously divided prior to its arrival on the earth. Prior to God starting this, birthing this, this new breed of people. There were already divisions there. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about the Hellenistes. 
That's what the word Hellenistic there in the Greek, Hellenistes. The Hellenistes. Who are the Hellenistes? They are Jews of the diaspora. Understand, they are Jews. They're not Greeks. These are Hellenistic Jews or the Hellenistes. They're from all over the Roman Empire now, empire, now residing in Jerusalem. They are socially dialed in to Greek culture. They are savvy. They have embraced what Alexander the Great began several hundred years before. They're into it. They speak the Greek language. They read the Greek literature. They're part of the crowd. They know what's happening in their culture. These are what I would call the culturally relevant Jews. The Hellenistes. But then you have the Hebraeus. And the Hebraeus are mostly from Judea. Mostly spoke Hebrew, Aramaic. Embraced their Jewish customs and heritage. These were the ones you would call the old school traditionalists. So you've got the culturally relevant Hellenistes. And you've got the old school traditionalist Hebraeus. Prior to the church, these two groups didn't have a whole lot to do with each other. Both groups were used to keeping to themselves. Both groups looked down their nose at the other group. The Hellenistes saw the Hebraeus as outdated. Get with the program, man. Pick up the pace. You need to be contemporary. The Hebraeus on the other side saw the Hellenistes as spiritually compromised. Reading that Septuagint, that, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, what's wrong with you? Speaking the filthy language of the common people, the Greeks, come on. Speak the Hebrew, man. Get back to the Aramaic. Read the King James. <laughs> I like the King James. But the whole problem was it's our widows against their widows. It's us versus them. The Hellenistes complained that their widows are being intentionally sidelined by the Hebraeus. Of course they are. They're doing it on purpose. The food distribution program ministry of the church is now a problem. The food distribution program is a good idea. It's a great idea. Why don't we start a program by which we can take care of of our widows, the widows among us. Make sure they get fed. Make sure they get taken care of. A program of the church. It's one of the early programs. And what's amazing is the second you inject a program into church, you are going to have problems. It's kind of the way it is. An us-against-them mentality. This program's here to care for people, and yet those who are supposed to be cared for, some are being left out, some are getting more than they should, and there's this complaint that now rises up. Let me remind you before we go any further how God feels about divisions. And before I say this, I'll tell you this. 99.9% repeating of the time, God could really care less about our programs. Because they're never the issue for the Lord. How does he feel about divisions? Proverbs 6.16 There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. In Greek poetry, that's like saying there are six things that God absolutely hates, but the seventh one He hates more than any of the others. And here they are. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And, here's number seven, the big one, one who spreads strife among brothers. Want to know what the Lord hates? There it is. He hates division. He hates strife. He hates conflict that oftentimes comes up because we are so busy about our program. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul said, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. By the way, I am, I am really thankful that coming up on 12 years as a fellowship, the number of times there have been any kind of divisions in this church have been almost nil. That is by the grace of God. 
That is by the Spirit of the Lord. Oh, there have been little conflicts, little spats here and there, little problems, but nothing like I've seen in other churches. You need to understand that that is the Spirit at work. The unifying power of the Spirit, because it ain't us. I thank the Lord for that. 1 Corinthians 12.24 Paul writes, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now you might ask just reading this first verse, well, did this happen? Were the widows of the Hellenistes intentionally disregarded? I doubt it. I guess it's possible, but I doubt it. What I really think you've got going on here is an administrative nightmare. What do you mean? Well, we had 120 disciples that burgeoned to 3,000 in one day, soon to be 5,000 plus, soon to be multitudes nearly overnight. How do you administrate that kind of growth that quickly with absolutely zero... They didn't have the purpose-driven church to to go back and read. They didn't have all the church growth manuals. They didn't have Barna to explain it to them. They didn't have any of that. They're just all of a sudden a new breed of people gathered together, worshiping the Lord, moving forward. There's a need. They start to meet the need. And next thing you know, what do we do with this? How do we handle this? Growing pains can be most uncomfortable. Growing pains are hard. One of our shepherds told me yesterday he he met the first person that he's met so far. ran into the first person who told him they stopped coming to the bridge because we moved out of the barn. He told me where they're going. I'm thankful that they're going. I'm thankful that they're involved with church. I'm thankful that they're in the Word and worshiping Jesus. But I was saddened because it was never about the barn. Any more than it's about this building. It's just wooden sticks. You know? Growing pains can be tough. Churches, as they change, as they morph, as people come in, what are we supposed to do? Just not grow? There are people who believe that. Let's not grow. Let's just keep it us. Let's close the doors. We've talked about this recently. (laughs) Do you think Peter ever pined for the early days? With Jesus on the shores of the Galilee and in the hills around the Galilee. Twelve guys. Some women cooking up some great meals and providing the money. I mean, does it get any better than that, guys? (laughs) Think I ever romanticized the good old days in the barn? You bet I do. I loved it. I go back further than that. I romanticized the very beginning of this church when there were 20 people in a living room. I love that. I miss that sometimes. So do we stop doing what we're doing? Do we shut it all down? Do we say, no more, Lord? I have a two-word phrase for any group of people who call themselves the church but are intent on not growing. Two words, self-serving. That's judgmental, Rick. Yep. I know. I am making a judgment. Self-serving. Why are we here again? The gospel. The gospel. Tell you something about the gospel. I've already believed in it. I've already been saved through it. So, if I'm here for the gospel, guess who it's not about? It's not about me. It's not what I want. It's not what I desire. It's not what I hope will happen. It's not what my vision is for the Bridge Fellowship to look like. This is not my church. And it is not my vision. It's His. All we are here to do is to adhere to Him the absolute best that we can. And I promise you, He wants His church to grow. Go, He said, into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age, Jesus said. Can it get any more clear? The more a church grows, the more complex and complicated it can become. And I've discovered the more a pastor has to work at simplicity to make sure that we don't go over the cliff 
and stop being an organism and become an organization. Verse 2. You're going to preach that long in every verse? I hope so. (laughs) Verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation. That word congregation is literally the multitude. Congregation sounds a little too nice to me. It was the multitude. They They assembled the mass of believers there. Get them all together. The multitude of the disciples. And they said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Wow. I love that answer. That amazes me. Can you imagine if I said something like that? Hey, Rick, could you help us move this table over here? No, no, I'm sorry. I don't do that. I preach the Word. It's undesirable for me to help you, peons. You do it. It's not my business. This answer is direct It's honest, and it is absolutely true. And please understand exactly what the apostles are saying here. It is the highest pastoral priority of the church to preach the Word and to pray. And I will get to that in just a second. I'm not talking about whether or not a pastor should serve. Of course a pastor should serve. But what I'm talking about here is the highest pastoral priority of the church is not, is not the administration and coordination of ministries and programs. And part of the problem that the church, I believe, has had over the years is the pastors become the administrators instead of the servants of people. Instead of those focused on the spiritual things, on prayer, on the Word of God, they become focused and distracted on all these other things. It shouldn't surprise you to hear me say that I think this is at the root of weak churches today. Pastors of small churches unable to study the Word because they're out on the lawnmower. Pastors of large churches not having time. Did I tell you that I I had lunch with a a pastor uh, a couple of months back who was shocked that I preached for an hour on Sunday mornings? He was even more shocked that I preached for an hour and a half on Wednesday nights. And you know what his question was? Where do you find time in the week to do that? I don't wait tables. I don't. I study the Word. That is where I spend the bulk of my time. Well, I wish I could just sit there studying the Bible. Okay, well then become a pastor. (laughs) You can do that. Start a church. We'll send you out. This answer is absolutely spot on. The weakness of churches today, the inability of churches to get the gospel out and to maintain the organism environment that the Lord wants for us is because we disconnect from the Holy Spirit and we don't preach the Word. Because there's too much else going on. And you've got to have somebody take care of the widow's food distribution program. You notice the first thing that people did, they went directly to the apostles. We have a problem, we need you to fix it. And so the answer is excellent. You know, we could show up and start waiting tables and overseeing this. We could do that. But it will only be to the neglect of what God has called us to do. We are here for the Gospel. We are here for the Word of God to be taught, to be absorbed, to be carried out into the world. We are here to be connected to, praying to always, the Spirit of the Lord. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 The prophets spoke the words of God Behold days are coming when I will send a famine on the land Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water But rather rather for hearing the words of the Lord Now I'm not ripping on service In fact we're going to get there in just a minute That there are two very specific aspects of ministry in the church Just two That the Lord called out And service is one of them But the point is, the apostles are not giving a self-defense of a holier-than-thou, you know, they're descending from the ivory palace on high. We will not serve tables. We are the apostles. That's not what they're saying. It's funny. Every now and then, Jeff D'Angelo comes by the church and hangs out, and we'll, we'll spend a half hour or so talking together, and 
every time from the first time he showed up here at the building, I know he's coming. Uh, because I'm in my office and I can hear coming up the stairs, Take me past the outer courts into the holy place. He sings horrible. He sings turning the into the doorway into the office there, past the brazen altar. <laughs> Jesus said, Luke twenty two twenty seven, who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, culturally speaking? But he says, I am among you as one who serves. And so you read that, you compare it to what the apostles said, and you say, wow, that's a contradiction. The apostles are saying it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Note they didn't say it's not desirable for us to serve tables. They said we can't do both. And what's not desirable is not that they're not willing to serve. What's not desirable is that if they serve in the widow's food distribution program, they will neglect the Word of God. And that is not desirable. What was it that Jesus served up during His ministry? Fishes and loaves. Okay, I'll give you that. He fed the 5,000 in Hebrew territory. He fed the 4,000 in Greek territory. He fed Peter and James and John and some of the others there on the, on the shores of the Galilee. fed them fish and loaves. I know that He did that. What did Jesus primarily serve? He said, I am among you as one who serves. What was the primary thing that Jesus served up in His ministry? The Gospel. The Word of God. That's what He served. And were he to spend all his time serving bread and fish, serving tables, he would have done so to the neglect of the Word of God. That's what the apostles are saying here. Now, the apostles have a great solution to the food conflict, and we're going to see that in just a minute. Let's skip on to verse 4. As they clarify, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Acts chapter 6, verse 4 is the simple standard that I have challenged all of our shepherds to from day one in this fellowship. If you are a shepherd in this fellowship, your primary role, your A number one thing, the thing you should spend the most time involved with, is prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's primary. In fact, it's what I would call, and just two things to jot down this morning the shepherd's priority. The shepherd's priority. Biblically speaking, the Lord has given two roles in the church. And I say roles because one is not greater than the other. One is not more important than the other. There are simply two roles. And one of those roles is the role of the shepherd. The role of the bishop. The role of the elder. All three of those words used interchangeably by Peter and Paul to speak of the same Role, the same aspect, the same office, if you want to call it an office, although I I don't like the word office so much, but you can call it that. The shepherd's priority. If a man be called to be a shepherd in a church fellowship, the priority, my opinion, biblically speaking, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, prayer and the ministry of the word. That's what you are called to do. Doesn't mean that you don't serve communion on a Sunday morning, and you've probably noticed a lot of our shepherds do. But that's not the primary role. Doesn't mean that you don't serve on the finance or administrative board. Some of our shepherds do. But that's not the primary role. Even though I know Glenn loves it. He's a money guy. He gets this stuff. You should see him light up in our finance meetings. Oh guys, let me just tell you about this. And he starts saying numbers and I'm going... I'm like, I'm back in pre-algebra in high school. I don't even know what the teacher's saying. When is lunch? You know, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I can tell you this about my brother, that finances is not the most important thing to him in this fellowship. You know what is? His small group. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Because that's all he ever talks about. You know what we're talking about tonight in small group? You know what we're studying, Rick? Hey, what's your opinion about this? Hey, I was looking at this, and by the way, we were praying. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's the deal. Again, it doesn't mean we don't do other things. Paul's swan song to Timothy, the last letter that we have written by Paul, he may have written others, we don't know, but what God preserved for us as part of His Word, 2 Timothy, 
Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, Retain the the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, he says, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Timothy, you have been given a great gift, a great treasure. Guard it, man. Guard the trust. Guard it with your life. Spend your life on that very treasure. Prayer, the ministry of the Word, that's the treasure given to anyone who shepherds in a church fellowship. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I'll just read this to you. Paul writing again to Timothy says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why is it such a big deal teaching the Bible? Okay, Rick, I get it. You're a Bible teaching church. That's the flavor of the bridge. I hope not. I mean, I hope it is the flavor of the bridge, but isn't it supposed to be the flavor of the church? Why is it so important, Paul says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from all the truth and will turn aside to myths. And I see it happening all the time. And I told the 20-somethings that connect on Friday night, I think the greatest tragedy of this culture, of that generation of people, is how biblically illiterate many of them are. And when I see the number of them turning out for Connect on a Friday night to hear the Bible taught, I think there's hope. That's a good thing. You know what's interesting about Connect? I'm kind of in side side note mode this morning, so we're just going to go off a few times here. Just go with me. What's really cool to me about Connect is that the whole purpose of Connect is to go out and get those who have left the church. And you know how they do it? They invite them here for a meal, and then they have church. It's not some special program. It's not some unique design. Someone didn't just all of a sudden, Jim didn't wake up one morning and go, Hey, I've got it. We have a special way just to reach this. No. They eat. They fellowship. They come in. They have worship. And they have teaching. And people are showing up for this. 20-somethings are showing up for this and getting reconnected by the Word of God. See how important it is? In a culture, in a world where the Word is being set aside for all kinds of myth. And we know it. We know about the myths. Even people buying into them know deep down inside it's, it's all bogus, but it's just I'm just rebellious, so this is what I want to do. We maintain that prayer and the ministry of the Word are the highest priority for those who would shepherd the flock of God. The prayer aspect should be obvious. Right? I mean, it's our connection. It's our lifeline. It's why, as I've told you before, that the very first ministry position after I started was less. And what's his role? Pastoral administration. No. Prayer. We, I, I, it used to tickle me that we... I just walk around thinking, it's so weird. We have a prayer pastor. That's all he does. What does do? He prays. That's all? Yeah. All the time too, man. But it was setting a standard. God was setting a standard for us at that time. I want you to be in prayer. And I want you to be in the Word. Just be in prayer. Prayer is our lifeline, man. Prayer is our power source. Prayer is why this church fellowship will grow or not grow. Because even the teaching of the Word where there is no prayer disconnects us from the power source. We've got to be a people of prayer. Back in the late 1800s, there's a story told. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. About some young men, about five college students who who went to London for a weekend. And as Sunday morning approached, they thought, oh, you know, we really ought to go to the to the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and see the the famed Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
Let's go hear Spurgeon preach. So they show up at the church early one morning. And now while they're waiting there for the, for the doors to be opened for the first service that's about to take place, a man comes up to them and says, Hey, you guys want to go on a tour of the church? Let me show you all around. Okay, great. We're not doing anything else. They said, the guy said, Well, let me take you down to the boiler room. It's a hot day in July. And he wants to show us the boiler room. Okay. So they go down a long flight of stairs, down into the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They walk down a hallway. They come to double doors. And the man goes, and opens up the doors. They look inside, and there's 700 people praying. 700 people praying for the service that's about to take place upstairs. And the man said, that's the boiler room. You see, a boiler room was simply a room, especially back in the day, back in the 1800s, they would heat the churches with steam. It was the power center of the church as far as keeping it warm in the cold winters. He said, that's the boiler room. And he said, oh, by the way, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. (laughs) So again, I don't know if that's an absolute true account or not. But we do know as an absolute fact that Spurgeon did have five to 700 people who met every Sunday morning to pray before services began. You wonder why his church exploded? There you go. And we know that Spurgeon himself said, prayer is the throbbing machinery of the church. That's great. Prayer is the throbbing machinery of the church. What did Jesus say? John 16, 26. He said, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, you're going to ask things in my name and I'm not even going to have to step in and intercede. I'm not going to have to persuade the Father. The Father will respond immediately to you because you love me and because you have believed in my name. You just call out my name as you pray and the Father is going to hear you. The Father is going to respond to you. And so hand in hand with prayer now is the ministry of the Word. Now I want to say one more thing about the Word here. Prayer is our source of power, but they say they don't just say prayer and the Word, they say prayer and the ministry of the Word. And the word ministry in the Greek is diakonia. Diakonia. It's where we get our word deacon. The deaconing, if you will, of the word. The service. I've been asked many times before, Rick, why don't you have deacons listed in your bulletin at the Bridge Fellowship? Don't you have deacons? Yeah, we do. We have all kinds of deacons here. They just don't meet. Because by my experience, deacons who meet, it's a bad thing. You end up with conflict and all kinds of problems, and you end up with a little group that's the junior eldership. And then you've got the senior eldership. Both are wrong ideas of what the Bible teaches. Shepherds and servants, those are the two roles. Shepherds and servants. Those who are called to prayer and the ministry of the Word, and those who are simply called to serve. Again, I'll get to them in just a minute. But the ministry here, the diakonia, is service. The service of the Word. It's honest to goodness, sleeves rolled up, nose to the Scriptures, study and teaching of God's Word. And you put that alongside prayer and you have a powerful combination. And I know I'm a broken record on this and I know I've just dated myself by using the phrase broken record, but there's not nearly enough ministry of the Word in the church today. You know what's replaced it? Tradition, assumptions, creeds, religion. I also shared on Friday night, I keep getting these texts from Hannah, and it just cracks me up. In fact, I think I shared this on Wednesday night, too. It's fresh on my mind. If I get a text, if Cheryl gets a text from Hannah, it's, Hey, Mom, how's it going? What you doing? What's going on? I miss you. Love you, Mommy. If I get a text from Hannah, it's, Dad, what does the Bible say about predestination? (laughs) Go! You know? And I'm supposed to, like, drop everything and start texting... And I found out what happens is Hannah gets into these conversations 
She's got a terrific small group. She's surrounded by believers there in Wisconsin. But she and Josiah keep getting into conversations with Christians who are more intent on defending unbiblical lifestyles than they are in searching and adhering to the Word of God. It's not questions about predestination that are weird. It's questions like, yeah, what does the Bible say about gambling? Dad, what does the Bible say about drunkenness or drinking? Dad, what does the Bible say about marriage and and sexuality? Those are the questions she's shooting to me. And I'm like, why? Well, because I'm in a debate right now in our small group. Quick, I need answers. (laughs) So while, you know, Josiah, I think, is diverting them, she's over here going, hey, you know what we should look up? I told her the other day, I said, it's heartbreaking to me that you have those conversations with Christians and not with non-Christians. I would understand a non-Christian saying, what does the Bible say about gambling? I don't understand a Christian saying that. I, I just, this is just Rick. I understand a non-Christian saying, why shouldn't I sleep with my girlfriend? I don't understand why a Christian would ask that question. Except to say, we have a generation of people who do not know the Word of God. Because, and I don't blame this generation, I blame the previous generation who did not take the time to teach the Word of God. And to pass along the ministry of the Word. You realize that the Bible is so much more than having a moral compass. It's more than being Hellenistes or Hebraic. Look at the outcome of the apostles' priority in verse 7. The Word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's good stuff. That's God on the move. Through prayer and the ministry of the Word. And mark my words on this, if we did nothing else as a church fellowship, we would grow rapidly if all we did was focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. Really sounds like Rick is on the charge to take away every program that we have at the bridge. I'm not. I'm okay with that. I just want to make sure we know what the mission is that drives the method. That we know first why we're doing what we're doing, and we don't get it the other way around. But what we're doing matters. So we can't cancel this program because we've been doing this for 11 years now. I don't care. Why are we doing it? Is it for the gospel? It wasn't the food distribution program that kept on spreading. You notice that? It doesn't say in verse 7, and the food distribution program got bigger and bigger and more marvelous and drew all kinds of people to the church. That's never what does it. It wasn't the benevolence ministry. It wasn't the media ministry. It wasn't the church drama ministry. It wasn't the mechanics ministry or the sports ministry or the basket weavers ministry. These are not, I repeat, not the priority of the church. And any ministry, and our staff has heard me on this, and I keep saying it over and over and over. So if you have a problem with you know, one of our staff members adhering to this, it's coming right from here. But I've said to them many times, any ministry, be it a youth ministry, a children's ministry, women's ministry, small group ministry, missions ministry, any ministry is simply a mechanism for the priority of prayer and the Word of God. That's why we have different ministries. And if those things aren't accomplished, watch out. We will lose our focus fast. In fact, what happens when we lose sight of the why behind the what? Conflicts, complaints, confusion, division. More churches divide over issues in a ministry or a program than they do over the content of the Word of God. If someone storms out of here because they reject Jesus Christ as come in the flesh, as died on the cross, as as having resurrected, if they storm out of here and say, I don't accept that, okay. Then you need to leave. (laughs) Because it's the Word. But that's usually not why people leave churches. People leave churches because they were offended in a program. Their needs were not being met. 
that church was not doing for me what I needed to have a church do for me, well then, you're in the wrong church. Because the priority of the church is God's Word and His prayer. That's the shepherd's priority. Church programs tend to serve our needs. Okay? Rather than spreading to the lost, as we just saw in verse 7, the Word does. And I would say the Word does both. The Word both tends to our needs and spreads to the lost. It's what I would call the 412 principle. The 412 principle. Copyright pending. Ephesians 4.12 Paul writes that the priority of leadership is the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Let me read that one more time. The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. For years, as a pastor, I asked the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? How can I be trained to equip the saints? What does that mean? Acts 6.4 Prayer in the ministry of the word. That's how you equip the saints. That's the shepherd's priority. Ephesians 4.12, that's how we tend to the needs of the body. Hebrews 4.12, 4.12 principle. Ephesians 4.12 and Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's the 4.12 principle. The Word serves the saints by encouraging and equipping them with sound biblical doctrine, Ephesians 4.12. And the Word saves the lost by cutting to the heart, turning off the fat of the world so that a person can believe, Hebrews 4.12. You put it together, prayer and the ministry of the Word, and as I said, you have a powerful combination. That is our reason. It brings us back to, it keeps us dialed into the gospel. So that's the shepherd's priority. Every shepherd should have Acts 6-4 memorized. And everyone in the fellowship should call them on it. Hold their feet to that fire. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Hey, did you pray for me today? Prayer in the ministry of the Word. The, the second role in the church, the first one is the shepherds, and the second one is the servants. So, number two, the servants' power. The shepherds' priority, the servants' power. Watch this, going back to verse 2. The apostles have just said it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Notice how they said to do it. Number one, they said, from among you. They didn't say hire out. They didn't say the answer to this is to call a catering company of non-believers to come take care of our widows. They said, from among you. Why? Because you don't outsource ministry. You don't hire a professional band. I'd rather have one lame harmonica player... Well, maybe not. Maybe we would just sing a cappella at that point. I know Larry got all excited. <laughs> I'd rather sing a cappella than hire in a professional worship team. Amen. Give me Rachel behind the piano. Please give me Rachel behind the piano. And we will worship the Lord. But you don't outsource ministry. You don't hire the professionals. Why? Because God wants it real. Amen. He wants it authentic. He calls His people to the service, to a servant's power. He says not only from among yourselves, but they say people with good reputation. Seven men of good reputation. That word reputation, note this, is martyreo. Seven good martyrs. Seven good witnesses. And the first man on the list will become the first martyr in the church. Stephen. Full of the Spirit. Because you don't serve in the fellowship of the Lord and you don't serve 
with any kind of power whatsoever, you serve on half power if you don't do so, if you don't do so with the Spirit of the Lord, full of the Spirit. Well, they're just going to like serve food to the widows, full of the Spirit. Think about this. The difference between someone serving food to the widows who's outsourced and does not have the Holy Spirit. They'll serve the food, they'll give it to them, and they're done. But you get a believer in there filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They're not only serving food, they're dialed into the need of the widow. They're praying for the widow. They're caring for her. She matters. Full of the Spirit. And full of wisdom. I would just interject with that because because of the ministry of the Word. It was easy in the first century church for them to find people who were full of wisdom because the Word was constantly preached. Because they were constantly in prayer. Why is this so important? Seven men from among you, of good reputation or witness or testimony, martyreo, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. Why do they give this list? Why not just say, hey, choose seven guys and be done with it? (laughs) These guys are going to need some power because it's just seven men who are now going to administrate a program for an entire multitude. How many widows are we talking about here? The number would have been vast. But they also needed to be men of good testimony, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom because, please note this, ministry can be dangerous. Verse 5. Hold that thought. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, who liked to sing, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, not Pumba, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Wait a minute. What? Did you note the order? After praying, they laid their hands on them. That's not how we do it. We normally will have someone come up and we'll lay hands on them and pray. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? But that's not what it says. And I went back and looked at the original Greek and (laughs) this is right. They brought them before the apostles and after praying, laid their hands on them. Why? I really thought on this. I believe it's a prayerful picture of discernment. I think if we could take this one verse and stretch it out a little bit over time, that once these seven names were brought to the apostles, the first thing they did was pray about them. And then they laid hands on them to ordain them for ministry. Prayer first, and then send off to do the service. After after praying, they laid hands on them, because as Paul said... 1 Timothy 5.22 Do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly and thereby share in the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Don't call anyone to ministry too fast. Don't just fill a need because there's a need. There's a hole here. Someone, you do that, you know. You're going to have problems. Pray first. Discern. You don't ordain anyone to ministry too quickly. Why? Because again, ministry can be dangerous. There are many pitfalls to a servant's power. Even among these seven men. Note this, it's interesting, all seven have Greek names. So my assumption is that they are all part of the Hellenistes. They're among the Hellenistic Jews. Which tells you a couple things. One, if you complain, you're going to be put in charge. No, you know, I'm not saying these men are complainers. In fact, I highly doubt that they were part of the complaining group. But it's interesting that the apostles draw from that group to bring in men who would be trusted to take care of the overall administration of things. That's wise on the apostles' part. But look at the names. Stephen. Stephen's the first man. We will see in Acts chapter 7, hopefully Wednesday night we'll cover this, a powerful preacher. A man who knows the word inside and out. Now, remember, he's just being set in charge of the widow's food distribution. And yet he's about to be martyred for preaching the word, which means just because you're serving doesn't mean you can't preach the word. 
It's still a priority for you. It still matters that you are in the Word and about the Word and sharing the Gospel. And we'll see Stephen do that remarkably. Philip is the second name. Philip, we will see in Acts chapter 8, an energetic evangelist. Man, in just one chapter, he just stirs it up. He ends up meeting an Ethiopian, and we believe that Philip is the reason that this one Ethiopian not only got saved, but went back to Ethiopia, and Christianity exploded there. Because of this deacon who was part part of the food distribution program, and now sent by the Lord into great evangelism, a man full of power. Then we have Prochorus. Prochorus actually in the, in the Greek does mean a leader of singers, ironically. But church history tells us he became John's personal assistant. That he went on and he traveled with John. He saw to John's needs and after John's death, he himself was raised up as, as a bishop of, uh, I think it's Nicomedia, and ultimately became martyred himself in a place called Antioch. Then we have Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and we don't know anything about these three guys. But they're named, so I figure if they're named in Scripture, they ought to be named here. They should be honored in this place. So we have these three, and and they were part of what was going on, but again, nothing specifically known. And then we come to the last name, Nicholas or Nicolaus. And Luke tells us here, Two things about Nicolaus, and I think it's for a reason. He tells us not only, well, he's the only one not born a Jew. He's a proselyte. Which means of these seven men, six were Jews, but they were culturally uh, dialed in. Okay, They were Hellenistes. They were Jews by birth, but they were Jews in the culture. This guy, Nicolaus, became a Jew. Okay, converted to Judaism prior to Christianity and then continued on into Christianity. So he's a proselyte. And Luke also tells us he is from Antioch. And we know, historically, that in Antioch a heresy sprang up and the heretical group was called the Nicolaitans. Nicolaus from Antioch the Nicolaitans who began in Antioch. And as a further evidence of what may have taken place with this guy Nicolaus, is that as early as 180 A.D., Irenaeus, the early church father, reported that Nicolaus was indeed the founder of the Nicolaitans. So? So... The Bible tells us about the Nicolaitans. Revelation chapter 2 verse 6, Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus said, This you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And Jesus speaking to the church at Pergamum said, So you have also had some who in the way, in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are a heresy frowned on in Scripture. Irenaeus tells us that Nicolaus, this man, this one of these seven guys chosen by the apostles, prayed over, hands laid on them, were sent into ministry, and one of the seven, perhaps, possibly, became a heretic. You see why you don't lay hands on anyone too quickly? You see why it matters? You see why the priority is prayer and the ministry of the Word? Because even right here, we have a man who, it looks like, led a massive heresy against the church. Nico is where we get our word Nike. It means, it is, it's where we get the word Nike, meaning conquest. That's why Nike chose the name, it's the Greek word Nico. Conquest, power. Laetans, the laity, the common people. The idea of the Nicolaitans truly was power over the common people. And from what we can gather from history, it was an intense uh, intense discipleship ministry where you didn't do anything except that you were told to do it by those who were over you. And that's not the way it is in the church. Let me say this very clearly. Shepherds of the Bridge Fellowship are not over anybody. I am not over anybody. We are all together under Jesus. Amen. And we're all servants together. And to my mind, a shepherd needs to be more of a servant, needs to be more of an under rower, needs to, to 
be supporting the rest. Humbly doing the work to which He's been called. Warning. Those not content to serve, be it with prayer, the ministry of the Word, or at the table, can quickly turn into power plays, bossiness, control over others, satisfying the carnal desire for power and status, and that's not Jesus. Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Both roles, shepherd and servant, are serving roles. It's just a matter of what the focus is. And for the shepherd, it is prayer in the ministry of the Word. And for the servant, it is serving in the body and serving people. Again, with prayer and ministry of the Word. As our main priority. And there is great joy in the attitude of service. 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul said, Not that we lord it over your faith. We are workers with you for your joy. That should be at the heart of what we're doing to bring joy to people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's true ministry. That's the servant's power. Where the Holy Spirit is bringing someone into full power in the service of the gospel, they're bringing the joy of salvation into people's lives. They're looking to lift up and build up within the church and without the servant's power. Psalm 110. You've heard us quote this verse many times. Psalm 110 verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. 1 Timothy 3.13. Paul says this about those who have served well as diakonos, as deacons. They obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence, boldness in faith that is in Jesus Christ. So in this story, we see the shepherd's priority and the servant's power. And again, verse 7 tells us the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Note that. It's absolutely key. As the word spread, the number of disciples increased greatly. Lost were getting saved. Saved were getting sanctified. As the word spread, the widows got fed. And the word continued to spread. And that's the church being the church. Let's pray together. Father, you've given us such clear and simple instruction. Forgive us from wandering away from it. Forgive us, Lord, right here in the Bridge Fellowship for any wandering off that we have done. Anything that we might be engaged in that really isn't our business, isn't our role, isn't our calling. We recognize, Lord, there are a lot of good things that can be done in the name of service in this world. But they're not all the responsibility of the church. And so my prayer to you, Lord, is to give our shepherds, each and every one, the wisdom that we need to keep things on track. Simply to keep watch. That we won't confuse the methodology methodology for the mission. Father, I pray for our entire fellowship, a a fellowship truly I'm seeing filled with diakonos. Men and women who are content to serve, desiring to serve, wanting to serve in the name of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. May we shepherd and serve well that we might be found faithful by you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.